As the kids go out to Kids Church, we're going to hear from God's Word. So if you have a Bible there, or if you have a Bible on your phone and you want to follow along, we'll go open up to the book of 1 John. It's the, letter, the first letter that John sent. Um, chapter 4, and we're going to kick off from verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this love, in this, the love of God was made manifest amongst us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, not that we have, this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God... God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. All right, well, good morning and uh, welcome, uh, especially if you're new or visiting for the first time. Let me just get set up here. Uh, I'm Jeremy. I'm um, the lead pastor here at City Light. It's great to be able to open God's Word with you. And just a couple of things to, to note as we kick things off. The first one is um, to give some of our City Kids team a bit of a rest. We've brought together two of our programs for City Kids out the back. And while kids bring life and joy, you will know that they also bring noise. So you will hear them from time to time during the service. But that's okay. It's because they're having a great time. So you can thank the leaders for that afterwards a little bit as well. But there's going to be more out the back than normally. Uh, But also as well, just kind of heading into the year, I just want to thank you for either tuning in online or for being here in person. I know at the beginning of December, a lot of us were expecting maybe a different start to 2021, and yet here we are, it's face masks again, we're not singing again, we can't all be here again. Sorry to start the service with such a downer, right? But I'm just just acknowledging where we're at. Um, And it is difficult, and look, I I don't know how you took it when things started to wind backwards in terms of restrictions in December, but I took it like a mature Christian and an adult. I just, I was totally philosophical about it and understanding. Now, of course, I, I, you know, I complained and almost threw a mental tantrum like a child. 
and there were some ways in which I was like, come on, God, we were just getting started. We were just you know, starting to get some momentum. We could gather together in more numbers. We could sing together. We could do some of the things that the people of God love to do. And then within, it was literally a week, wasn't it? We got to sing for a week, and then it was kind of rolled back. But I think God's kindness was in it. And I think there were just, just, just before we open up God's word in 1 John 4, I just want to share with you, I think, three things Jesus is teaching us in this. Because we weren't unwarned as the people of God about these things. You know, in Matthew 24, towards the end of Matthew's gospel, that's the gospel we're going to be spending pretty much all of this year in. But in Matthew 24, Jesus gathers his disciples because he wants them to be ready for the life that's to come. And he says to them, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are the beginnings and the birth pains. So Jesus did warn his people not to be shocked when things go wrong. And I think God has shown just a little bit of kindness in this kind of, the little bump that we experienced before Christmas in this. One is that I think we probably should still be thankful that in Australia, so far, COVID has been largely, I know not for everyone, but largely a matter of lifestyle, not life or death. And that has not been the experience of most of the world. So there's something to be thankful in perspective in that. The other one is that we're not to be deceived. That 2021 is likely to be different to last year, but I think all of us should be prepared for the fact that it's going to be a little bit wobbly this year, that it will still be a little bit unpredictable, that it will at times have the illusion like we're in control and then suddenly that will be snatched out from under us. And just, I think as disciples of Jesus, we need to be ready for that. And as a church community, we need to be ready for that as well. I don't say that to be kind of doom and gloom, but just that we might be prepared. And the last one is this, that I think God is not done yet. I think over this year, God has been doing a work and he's not finished it yet. And God is, I think, pushing us as a church, and I'm sure the church across Australia and the world, that it matters that you would have a deep personal faith that, and a resilient faith that not only survives difficulty, but can thrive in difficult seasons. And I think that's the work that he's pushing into us as a church that we need to be the kind of people as individuals and a church community that can grow stronger as disciples of Jesus, even when it's difficult and unpredictable, and that we can be making disciples, reaching people with the gospel, even when it's difficult and unpredictable. And so I just want to encourage you that this is not out of God's hand, that God is doing a work, and as a church, we want to be paying attention to that. But I also want to encourage you that not to worry, because God has got this. And he's seen his church through more difficult seasons than this and will do in the future. So I just want to encourage you as we start out in the year that God is at work in our community. And I'm, I'm, I love the fact that today, the passage that we're looking at is a call for the followers of Jesus to love more than fear. And it's a timely message. And if you were listening in online or you're here and you wouldn't identify yourself as a Christian or particularly religious or spiritual I love that you're here and listening to this because I think God has a word for you specifically as well. Because there is no one who doesn't experience fear. No one's sane anyway. Fear is a powerful motivator, isn't it? Fear can make you act quickly and decisively. I experienced this while we were away on holidays. We went to one of the most beautiful parts of Australia, if not the world. I'm a little bit biased, but whatever. But we, went to, we went to the South Coast too. And can anyone confirm this for me? It's spelt Jervis Bay. Is it Jervis Bay or Jarvis Bay? 
Yeah, no one's willing to commit to that. I'm, I'm going to go with Jervis. I'm going to go with the spell. I thought you said it Jarvis, but it's spelled Jervis, but whatever. That's where we were. And so lately, I'm not a great swimmer, but I've been trying to just, you know, get a few meters you know, out there in the, in the open water. And so while we were there one, on one of the days, I just said to my wife, look, would you mind looking after the kids? I'm just going to head out the back for a bit of a paddle. And so I went out the back of a, of a beach called Greenfields. I haven't yet ventured out beyond the heads. There was one weapon out there who was like, I don't know, two kilometers out or something. Just, it was just going from horizon to horizon. So I don't know if he was off to New Zealand or whatever, but apparently some people swim like that. But I was out there at the back, and it's quite a mindful thing, right? As you're out there, you're, you're not thinking about anything else because you're stressed about dying. And so you are, when you're swimming, you're just swimming. And as I was paddling, I put my left arm over for a stroke in my awkward, clumsy way, and it felt like I put my arm through hot wire. And I suddenly realized, oh my gosh, it's blue bottles, I've just been done. And I calmly unpicked it and then paddled. No, I absolutely panicked. Mel, looking from the beach, thought I'd seen a shark or something like that, because I was just like splashing about. And I did such a bad job of it that I ended up getting it wrapped around my other arm as well. And so I was just stinging and panicking. But then the other panic set in, I was like, how many of them are there out here? And as I'm pedaling through, I'm doing that safety stroke, just trying to look, and the goggles are all fogging up, and I'm like, where is the next one? Like, I know they're around here somewhere. And so I'm just making my way through this possible minefield back to the shore. But it put, it put fear into me for the rest of the week. And I had a goal that I wanted to do one long swim. And it came down to the second last day of the holidays. I'm like, this is it. This is the last chance I've got to do it. I'm going down to Hyams Beach early to get this done. And I start paddling, and it's like my arm is throbbing like I've got a spidey sense for, for blue bottles. And so I'm, like, I'm, I'm starting to think, oh, is that what happens when the venom gets in you? You can detect blue bottles. It's like <laughs> Spider-Man, I have a superpower. But so I'm on edge for a start, but there's no blue bottles. But as I'm swimming, I swim over this tiny plate-looking thing, and I realize that's a stingray. And I'm like, don't panic. People say, don't bother them. They won't bother you. It's fine. Just chill out, man. And so I'm like, I can keep going. There's only a tiny one anyway. I keep going a little bit further, and then I see these two beady eyes, this like kite-looking thing on the ground. I'm like, that's it. I, I, I get the message, South Coast. You don't want me in here. I'm done. And I swam probably the fastest I've ever swum to the shore and escaped whatever was some kind of an emergency. But look, look, for some of you, you might be comfortable with stingrays. I'm still stressed about them. But one thing I did notice was this. Once the fear kicks in, you can just move. Once the key, it gears your whole body up, doesn't it? God has designed our bodies well that when you fear threat, you can move. You can move like you've never moved before. Your body will get moving. Fear is a powerful motivator. It will get you to act. It will move you from passivity to doing something. It's a powerful thing. And the sad thing about it is that fear also can make us easy to manipulate. If you can make someone afraid, you can get them to act or to behave and to do things quickly and without much reflection. Have you ever thought about how many of our behaviours are motivated by fear? Wouldn't it be great if there was an app that could give you a pie chart of how many of the things that you do and how much time it took up, how many of the things that you do are based on or motivated by some kind of fear? What percentage of our total behaviours are directed by fear? The fear of missing out? The fear of rejection, the fear of boredom, the fear of powerlessness, the fear of losing control. How many of the things that we do are motivated by these kind of fears? 
You touch your smartphone over 2,000 times a day and most of it is driven by fear. The fear of boredom. The fear of dealing with something that you don't feel like dealing with so you go back to your phone and scroll and scroll and scroll. The fear of losing control so you check the news constantly. The fear of failure so you check your email and make sure you haven't missed a critical action for work. Fear can make us do all these little mini decisions every day, all these small behaviours, but it can make big ones happen too. Macro decisions. Fear can make you do things like marry someone, not for love, but simply because of the fear of being alone. Fear can make you take on a huge debt for the fear of looking unimpressive or poor. Fear is powerful. But there is one thing that 1 John says that fear cannot make you do, and it's this. Love. Fear can make you behave quickly, irrationally, dramatically, but it cannot make you love. The whole of the letter of John, as we've been looking at it, is love, 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 love. God is love. God has loved. God has loved you. Now you are to love. And it's over and over again. And in this passage, John is going to say, fear can do so many things, but it cannot make you love. And that if you really understand the love of God, once it completes his work in you, you too will be a loving person like God. And so I'm going to pray that as we open this up, that we would be resolved this year to act not out of fear, but out of love. I'm going to pray for that this morning. Father God, we praise you that you are the God of love. That your love is not idle. You sent your Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. That we might know that you love us even to the point of the, of the death of your very own Son. Father, make us a loving people. Take away from us fear. Even as we know that the cross has taken away all fear. The fear of death. The fear of your rejection of us to know that you love us and accept us because of Jesus. And so, Father, we pray that you would be transforming us for the sake of your holy name. Amen. Well, the first part that we read out today was 1 John 4, 7 to 8. Listen, just try and listen carefully to what John says here. He says, dear friends, he's writing to a church that he loves. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. So John says here, everyone who loves has been born of God. Is John therefore saying that basically, look, everyone's kind of a Christian when you think about it because everyone kind of loves, so everyone is, is you know, born of God. Well, no, because the very next sentence he says, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. So John has in his mind that there are people who know God and his love, and people who don't. And that there's meant to be a difference. And so he goes on to say what the difference is. Listen to what he says in 1 John 4, 9 to 10. It says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world, that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. John says, this is the definition of love. He's already said God himself is love, but rather than leaving that as some kind of vague sentimental term, like God is love, like whenever we, want, we love one another, that's an expression of God or something like that, he gets very specific. He says, no, this is how, is how I'm defining love. That God loved us when we didn't love him and sent his son to die for us. And this tells us some crucial things about love and it's specifically about God's love for us. It means firstly, 
that love does not wait to be loved. Just consider that. He said, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. So God didn't sit up there in heaven being like, man, these people are so frustrating and just waiting there for someone to turn towards him in love. And then once we did, he was like, finally, someone loved me. Now I can love you back. Now, John says here, God loved, God loved even when we did not love him. This is the nature of God's love. He doesn't wait to be loved in order to return. He doesn't owe it to us. In fact, when we were in rebellion and saying to God, I would rather live any way other than your way. I'd rather live my life completely without you. He, while we were like that, in that posture towards him, sent his son to die for us. So that's the first thing we learn about the love that John's talking about. It doesn't wait to be loved. The second one is love acts. When love has the power to do something about it, it does something. He says he sent his son to die for us. That's what love does. This is not a thoughts and prayers kind of love. God wasn't waiting up in heaven, seeing us in our predicament of sin and just being like, thoughts and prayers are with you guys. I'll send you a few memes and emails and and see if you, you turn out okay. Now John says he intervened. He sent Jesus on our behalf to die as a sacrifice for our sin. Love doesn't wait to be loved. Love acts. But thirdly, love doesn't neglect justice. God is not the kind of God who's just like, ah, yeah, look, is what it is. Uh, I I guess you guys mucked up, but let's just move on and forget about it. It says Jesus was sent as an atoning sacrifice. The word literally is a strange word. It's one we don't use very often, but a propitiation. That is an act that turns away anger. So Jesus' death on the cross wasn't just an example of someone who suffered silently or someone who spoke truth to power and then suffered for it. It was an act to turn away the anger of God that was meant to be directed at us. It's a propitiation. It's an act to calm anger. And if that sounds a bit abstract, which I know it can, let me, let me explain it in this way. Whenever you see on the news that there's been a courtroom verdict about something real, a significant crime, like a murder, have you noticed that after the trial, the cameras will pay special attention to the victim's family? because they want to know how are they feeling about the verdict. And there's pretty much only two ways that it goes. Either they are unhappy with the verdict and they think it was too light and there is outrage and there is crying and there is disappointment, there is a deep sense of injustice, or the family will say, we are very happy with the result today. Finally, justice has been done. When that happens and when our justice system is working well, That is an act of propitiation. So that the family aren't to take vengeance on one another. We don't have a society where that's supposed to happen. To do a judgment upon that criminal is an act of propitiation to take away the anger of the family. And when it works rightly, the family say, justice was done. When Jesus died on the cross, it was so that he could die on our behalf so that God could say, I am satisfied with the penalty for sin. That it's been poured out on Jesus rather than us. And on the cross, God's wrath was satisfied. His anger against sin was satisfied. And this is how he demonstrated his love. He didn't neglect justice and just overlook things. He dealt with sin and yet at the same way found a way for sinners to be made new in Jesus, for us to find forgiveness. And John says, this is love. 
This is God's love. This is the God I'm talking about, who's the God of love, who loves you that much. He would send even his own son to die in your place on your behalf. That's how much he loves you. And John says, if you grasp that, if you understand the gospel and how much God loves you and the lengths he went to in order to love you, he says, then love. Look at what he says, 1 John 4.11, summing it all up. He says, beloved, beloved people of God, those who know and follow Jesus, he says, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Love leads to more love. He says, because you are loved, you should love. And in this next section, he says, but don't be misled. Don't be motivated by fear. Know the love of God is meant to be your motivation for love. Because look at what he says in 1 John 4, 17 to 18. He says, fear has to do with judgment. And he's talking specifically about the judgment of God. But goes on to say that perfect love drives out fear. He says, when you understand God's love, that he loved you when you didn't love him, it drives out all fear of judgment. Isn't that incredible? Now let's slow down on this phrase, for, this phrase for just a second. When John says here, perfect love casts out fear, I don't want you to mishear it. Because it could sound like these are the two options. Either John here is saying, when he says perfect love drives out fear, the perfect there is either describing the quality of God's love or the purpose of it. So it could mean, perfect love drives out fear mean, could mean, because God's love is so pure, so good, so right in and of itself, that once you've experienced it, it casts out all fear. Or the second one is this. The perfect here could mean the idea of completion or purpose. And so what it could mean is, perfect love drives out fear means that once God's love has done its work in you, then you become a person who doesn't act out of the fear that God will judge you. And I think what John is saying here from the context is the second. He's saying that God's love, once it has completed its work in your heart, drives out the fear that God is angry with you, that there is a day of judgment waiting for you, that at the end of your life, God who's been kind of tapping his toes, waiting for you to get there, will get there and finally give you the dressing down that you deserve. Now that once his love has done its work in you, it drives out all fear of judgment. God has so engineered the gospel that fear as a motivator is completely taken away he has loved you so fully and completely that he will not unlove you and this means that for the christian your your desire to follow jesus is not motivated by the sense that if i don't do what god sends what god says there's a big stick waiting for me at the end but rather the sense that man if god has loved me that much how could I not pour out that kind of love, that quality of love on other people? I think that's amazing, isn't it? That God would so engineer the gospel that the only possible motivation for acting in obedience to Christ is to love. It casts out all fear. He says fear is to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Once you understand God's love, you will not act out of fear, but sheerly out of love. And this makes sense too, doesn't it? Because the truth is that fear cannot produce love. If you are a parent or you've ever dealt with kids in any way, you will know 
that you cannot threaten a kid into love. And of course, it sounds ridiculous to say, doesn't it? Because we understand how impossible that would be. But oftentimes, when you're in the moment, you try and motivate kids by whatever means to love their brothers and sisters. When they're fighting about things that just don't make any sense, you want them to act quickly, you want them to change their behaviour quickly, and one of the quickest ways to do it is to threaten them. Say sorry to your sister, or you're not going to watch TV later. And when you do that, of course, you'll notice that behaviours change quite instantly. When the threat of screen time is, is kind of looming in the, in the distance, you can get kids to do just about anything. But it doesn't lead to actual deep change, does it? It will lead to a half-hearted apology. It will lead to like a sorry. It will lead to you know, the, the outward behaviours that you're looking for. But it doesn't lead to deep change. And similarly with us. John is saying here, what is meant to deeply transform the people of God is a deep understanding of his love for you in Christ Jesus. That's the only thing that will get you to be a genuinely more loving person. Because if you are motivated by fear, it will not get you there. It will change your behavior for a time, or you'll act a certain way for a time, but eventually it will fade out. The only thing that leads to deep change in the people of God is a deep understanding of God's love for us. That's the only thing that will do it. And he says here, for that reason, perfect love drives out fear. Fear has to do with punishment, but whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Fear is connected to punishment, and as soon as the idea of the punishment has gone away, whatever the behavior change was will go with it. But love transforms. And so he says, God's people are to be transformed by his love. And primarily, John here is talking about no fear of God's judgment at the end of days. But of course, by implication, if we need not fear that, what then should the people of God fear? I mean, isn't that the logic of Romans 8? When Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God has dealt with your deepest need to have the wrath of God turned away from you and to be welcomed in as the children of God, then what else do you have to fear? He even says with that, what, what can anyone do to us? He says, what can separate us from the love of God in Christ? Powers, rulers, authorities, pandemics, nothing. Neither death nor any threat short of that. When, God is, when God's love has done its work in our hearts, it casts out fear. It is the basis for the courage of God's people. But of course, all of us struggle with fear, don't we? All of us still have areas of our life where God's love needs to do its perfect work. All of us have immaturity in our lives where we need to work through where we should be more motivated by God's love than the fear of others. And I can testify to this. I'm still immature as a Christian. I can still be motivated by fear. I can tell you that even in preparing for a talk on being motivated by love over fear, the temptation is to say things or to write things because of how people might respond to it. I can tell you that the earlier in the week a sermon gets written, the, less, the more likely it will be that it's driven by love rather than fear because as the deadline approaches, you just want to get anything on paper so you don't get up in front of people and look stupid because we fear what other people think of us. I even think back to the, the first ever talk I gave. I finished it with this really powerful illustration of gospel transformation and how it is that a slave trader became a pastor and his name was Isaac Newton. 
And if you, know, if you know the actual story, you'll know that his real name was John Newton, that Isaac Newton was the father of modern physics. An incredible, an incredible person, no doubt, but not the one I was referring to. I remember sitting down, and the person next to me mentioned it. He said, I just, I just think you may have meant John rather than Isaac. And I looked back over my notes and realized I got it wrong. And I just felt this, I felt it was a genuine fear reaction, isn't it? You feel that, the heat, you feel your body, like your extremities kind of tingling. And it was this sense of, I've embarrassed myself. And even now, as a pastor, I can, I can want to say or, or, or do things in a sermon based on how people would react, rather than the call to love the people of God as you open the Word of God together. Fear can make us act. Fear can motivate you to work, but it cannot make you love. John says we are, we are to be moved by God's love to love. So here's the question that I want to ask you. Where is it that you see fear taking hold of your heart? Whether it's the fear of God, the sense that maybe God really, I know I've heard the gospel a number of times, but I just have this sense that there's no way God could love me. There's no way at the end of days he would welcome me in like his child, that he loves me as much as Jesus and would say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. Whether it's a fear short of that, are you constantly fearing rejection? You worry, am I attractive? Am I funny? Am I successful? Am I good at sport? Am I tough? Am I the kind of person that other people would look up to? If so, just be sure that it's killing your ability to love. Because fear always points us back to ourselves. How will this make me look? What's going to happen to me? But love, like the love of God, points us outward. How may I do good for others? How may I show them the love of God that they might experience God's love for themselves? We are called to love because God has first loved us. And so let's land where John lands in terms of applying this. Look what he says in 1 John 4, 20-21. We've looked at what love is and why, but this is now who we should love. And he has someone particular in mind in first frame. In 1 John 4, 20-21, he says, Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen, cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, Anyone who loves must also love their brother and sister. John here, as he does throughout the book of 1 John, says, If you are a follower of Jesus, you are called to love your brother and sister in Christ." specifically. Now there are other sections where he talks about loving those who don't yet know God, who haven't experienced his love, but here, for whatever reason, for whatever this church that he's writing to is going through, he has in mind specifically the love that one Christian should have for another Christian. And the term he uses is brother or sister, and it follows through the Gospel of John into the letter of 1 John. And he says, if you hate your brother or sister, a fellow follower of Jesus, he says, that is incompatible with the love of God for you. He says, you are called to love. You must love your brother and sister in Christ. We are called to love our neighbor, whoever they are, but here specifically, the first application seems to be to the church of God. And so here's the question to ask you at the end of all of this. Is fear stopping you from loving your brothers and sisters well? Is fear stopping you from loving your brothers and sisters well? 
Does the fear of missing out mean that your life is so busy and jumbled that you actually don't have space to form deep relationships with the people of God and to love them in the way that John describes in the letter of 1 John? Is the fear of missing out that I might miss some opportunity or some experience or some relationship keeping your schedule so out of order that you really just can't regularly meet with God's people and love them and serve them well? If so, John is calling you to love differently this year. But I want to be clear on this in case, again, the motivation of fear is is creeping in. Because as you think of that, if you're feeling convicted by that, then I want you to know, how does God look at you? Is he looking down at you being like, oh, after everything I've done for you, how could you not just love one another like I've told you to? Honestly, like after all I've done. Now he looks down on you and says, what are you so afraid of? Are you so afraid of missing out on this, that or the other? In fact, you're missing out on what I've designed you for, to love one another deeply as I have loved you, that my love might be manifested among you. If so, it calls you to repent, to resolve to love this year, to love your brothers and sisters in Christ well. But maybe it's something else. Is it the fear of rejection that's stopping you from loving your Christian brothers and sisters well? You, kind of, you just don't want people to get close to you because every time that's happened in the past, things have gone badly. And so the way that you've kind of worked it out is, look, I've got my ways that I love people, but I just I keep people on an arm's length. If so, God is saying to you, what do you have to fear? If I've taken care of your every need, that you not, need not even fear judgment, what is holding you back from loving those who are near to you now? If it's the fear of burden, ah, oh, I forget to know people, some of them... Yeah, some of them seem okay, but some of them seem like a bit of a, honestly, a bit of a burden. I know there are some needy people out there. If I get involved in their lives, that's, that's going to be hard work. God says, what do you have to fear? To love deeply his people is one of the ways that we experience his love among us. He's calling you to love. I would challenge you over this week, wherever you are, to do an audit of your life just for 15 minutes, to sit down with this passage, to pour over it, to consider the love of God towards you in Christ, and to consider the call that that love should drive out all fear, and then consider this. Where do I see fear driving my behavior where instead it should be driven by love? Where do I see myself acting in a way that's reactionary or worried about consequences of something when in fact God is calling me just to love others in the way that he has loved me? And see if he doesn't use that to radically transform your life over this year. Look, I can't lie to you, over this year, there are going to be many, and I think legitimate, reasons to fear. And yet in the gospel, we know that we have every reason to love courageously. Let's pray that God would do that deep work in our hearts this year. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you that you are the God of love. When we want to know what love is, we need to only look to the cross where Christ's blood was poured out for us, where you demonstrated your love for us in Jesus. And Father, we just pray that you'd strengthen us to be a people who don't act out of fear, knowing that we have no reason to fear you, knowing that Jesus' death has taken away all sin, that you looked with satisfaction upon his sacrifice so that we might be set free. Father, may instead we be people filled with the love of Christ. We pray all of this for the glory of your name. Amen.